I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Georgetown, Illinois. Located in Vermilion County, Georgetown is a small city with almost 3,500 residents in east central Illinois. It is also fewer than 10 miles from the Indiana border, which lies just east of the town. Georgetown was established in 1826, and the town's history can be seen in some of the older buildings that still remain. James Hayworth originally mapped out the town's parcels and boundaries using the North Star as a compass and a grapevine as a dividing line. There is a difference of opinion about the origin of the name Georgetown. Some think the town was named for George Beckwith, the brother of Dan Beckwith, whose name was given to Danville, which serves as the county seat. Others believe James Hayworth, the man who originally mapped out the town's borders, named it after his son George. The first building was a doctor's office. The next was a blacksmith shop. Farming and mining formed the basis of Georgetown's economy, and these industries continue to this day. It is a town where everyone leaves their doors unlocked, every adult knows who your parents are, and the sense of community is strong. But in 1993, the actions of one stranger shattered the sense of security, and from that point forward, all doors were locked. On September 20, 1993, 15-year-old Jessica Roach had just started her sophomore year at Georgetown Ridge Farm High School. She was the middle child with an older sister, 17-year-old Mindy, and a younger brother, 13-year-old Chris. Around 3.30 that afternoon, Jessica was riding her new bicycle around the dirt roads surrounding their rural home. About half an hour later, her older sister Mindy was driving to the grocery store and passed Jessica on the way, waving to each other as they passed. 20 minutes later, Mindy was on her way back home when she saw Jessica's bicycle lying in the middle of the road. She got out of the car and called for Jessica, noticing drag marks from the bike's tires all over the dirt road. Concerned, Mindy drove home to tell her dad and he immediately called the police. Vermilion County Sheriff's investigator Gary Miller was assigned to investigate. Police officers quickly arrived in the area and started searching the surrounding cornfields and outbuildings. Investigator Miller looked into whether Jessica might have run away or decided to go off with some friends without telling her family. But as he dug for information, he could find no motivation for her to run away, and no one had a bad word to say about Jessica or her family. Investigator Miller asked her dad to take a polygraph test since he was one of the last people to see Jessica alive, and Mr. Roach willingly agreed and passed the lie detector test. Along with the information that Investigator Miller got from talking to neighbors, school officials, and members of the community, Mr. Roach's polygraph results convinced Investigator Miller that Jessica had been abducted, likely by a stranger. Investigator Miller described the case as a crime with no crime scene because when he went out to the road several hours later to look at the drag marks Jessica's sister Mindy described, they were gone. Remember, we mentioned this was a dirt road, and as police vehicles drove back and forth from the Roach house, they drove over the drag marks on the road and essentially erased them by doing so. Family, friends, volunteers, and the police searched throughout the night, but never found any sign of Jessica. Jessica's mother, Mrs. Roach, said that after the third day of not finding her daughter, she knew in her heart she was gone forever. 
About six weeks later, on November 8, 1993, remains were found in a cornfield across the state line in Perrysville, Indiana. This was about 20 miles east of Georgetown. The body was found because the farmer who owned the land was harvesting his crops and crushed the remains with his combine. Almost immediately after the remains were found, a witness came forward and claimed he saw a man walking out of the cornfield and heading towards a van on the night Jessica Roach was killed. Although authorities initially assumed the remains were Jessica's, x-rays suggested that the body was likely an 18 or 19-year-old woman, so Indiana investigators wondered if it belonged to a college student who had gone missing six months prior in Marion, Indiana. And this is about 130 miles northeast of Perrysville. The next day, however, Vermilion County Sheriff Larry Jones said that dental records were used to determine that the remains were not those of the college student. Jessica did not have any dental records that would assist with identifying the remains, but Mrs. Roach remembered that Jessica had her fingerprints taken by a sheriff's deputy when she was in the second grade as part of a children's safety class. You know what's interesting, Kathy, about Jessica getting her fingerprints done when she was in the second grade? Hmm. The sheriff's deputy who came to the class to do that actually turned out to be Investigator Miller, who's now looking into her disappearance. My son Brendan had the same thing. When he was in second grade, they had people come to the school from this company. It was called Identikit. So he came home with a kit and basically I rolled his little fingerprints out and I submitted them and they sent me back an ID card with his face on it and copy of one of his fingerprints and some basic information. I remember showing your sister and she thought it was the creepiest thing because it was designed to basically identify remains. Six days after discovering the human remains in Perrysville, Indiana, authorities confirmed that the decomposed body was Jessica Roach. Due to the extensive damages caused by both the machine and how much time had passed, it was impossible for investigators to be sure the cause of death. The police were also hindered in their efforts to solve the crime because of the total absence of physical evidence, either at the scene of Jessica's disappearance or where her body was found. As you can imagine, before Jessica's murder, Georgetown, Illinois, was the best small town in America. As we said before, everyone left their doors unlocked, Every adult in town knew your parents, and there was a very strong sense of community. Understandably, though, after Jessica's murder, everyone was terrified. Everybody was scared to death of what might happen, what had happened, what could happen. Almost six months after Jessica's body was discovered, in May of 1994, two girls in Georgetown, a 13-year-old named Abby and a 15-year-old named Kaylin, noticed that they were being followed by a man in a van. Just before dark, they were out riding bikes by the railroad tracks and noticed a van slowly driving past them. The van circled around and drove by them again, but this time the driver was leering at them as he drove by and he was trying to talk to them. The girls did not respond to anything he said and he kept going. As they continued riding their bikes, they saw him parked further down the road, backed into a parking space at a business, and he was sitting behind the wheel just watching them. This freaked the girls out, and they knew that it was time to get out of there as quickly as possible. They began pedaling as fast as they could, and as they passed him, the van pulled out from where it was parked and followed them down the road. I would have been freaking out. Absolutely. Yeah. As Kaylin and Abby tried to get away, they kept a lookout for where maybe they could go and hide and get away from him. So as they were riding, they actually saw an alleyway ahead of them that was blocked by a truck that was broken down. 
And so they both knew this was their out, which for teenagers who are so terrified, this was quick thinking. Agreed. The girls squeezed by the truck and rode down the alley, and the van couldn't follow them because it couldn't get through. They kept riding as fast as they could because they were still afraid the truck might go around or find another path to them. So they got to Abby's house, which was the closest one, and they hid their bikes in the garage, afraid, of course, that he would recognize the bikes if they just put them in front of the house, like a lot of kids do. Mm -hmm. Abby said, as soon as they did this and shut the garage door, they just stood there and hugged each other and cried because they knew they were finally safe. Abby went and found her dad and told him what happened, and he wanted to go out and try and find the van that had been following them. Abby and her dad spent about an hour driving around with no luck, but as they were headed home, Abby saw it. And she was so terrified by seeing it that she started crying hysterically. Her dad was able to get the license plate number and left the area quickly. And after they got home, remember it's 1993 and no cell phones, Mm -hmm. Abby's mom called the sheriff's department and gave them the license plate number. So, Kathy, here's the other thing. I saw an interview. It was on the case with Paula Zahn that she did with Abby and Kaylin. And they were talking about this incident. And Abby said that they weren't sure if the sheriffs were going to be able to respond or if they would respond to just a man in a van. Mm -hmm. So her mother and father made sure that every single person they knew found out about the van, had the license plate number and told everyone they knew. They just wanted to make sure even if there was nothing the sheriff's department could do, they wanted to know they'd done everything they could to get the word out there. Oh, that's good. So on this TV show, both Abby and Kaylin automatically started reciting what that license plate number was. This is like 20 years later. Oh, my God. Yeah. It oh. was crazy how they just, boom, It right was embedded the in their brain. Exactly. So following Jessica Roach's death, Investigator Miller had taken to occasionally checking sheriff's deputy call logs to see if there were any similar crimes that had come up. It was about five months, though, before Investigator Miller saw the report about the van stalking Abby and Kalen. It was at the same time that he saw another incident reported that might have a possible connection to Jessica's abduction and murder. In October of 94, so this is just over a year after Jessica was abducted and killed, and about five months after Abby and Kalen were stalked, two 14-year-old girls in Georgetown reported that they were at a store when a van pulled into the parking lot. The girls took off running and the van followed them, with the man asking why they were running and if they wanted a ride. The girls ran to a nearby house and called the police, and they had the license plate number. Investigator Miller ran the plate, and it came back to Larry Hall of Wabash, Indiana, which is almost three hours northeast of Georgetown. Following up on the girls' report, Investigator Miller called Sergeant Amons with the Wabash police and asked if he knew Larry Hall, and the sergeant did. The sergeant told Investigator Miller that Hall had been arrested and released twice in the past five months for stalking young girls. Investigator Miller also learned that Hall was the son of the town's gravedigger. Now, that's called a sexton, isn't it? I think you might have to be connected to a church to be a sexton, but honestly, I'm not sure. But that's not to be confused with singer Charlie Sexton. Who you and my sister loved. (laughs) Oh, my God. We totally followed that guy in our younger days. Quick story. We went to a concert. So it was your sister, my sister, and our other friend, Kathy. The four of us go to a concert in San Diego way back when. We followed his bus to his hotel. Anyway, nobody had a pen. So I grab a pen out of your sister's car, and I hand it to him to sign autographs for us. I'm the fourth person in line to get an autograph. Everyone got one, and when he got to me, the pen had no ink. (laughs) (laughs) I was so bitter. (laughs) 
So investigator Miller learned that Hall was the son of the town's gravedigger and was fascinated with Civil War and Revolutionary War reenactments. And between 1980 and 1994, Hall traveled across the Midwest to attend and participate in them with his identical twin brother, Gary. Here's what I thought when I read that. If you have identical twins, don't give them rhyming names. <laughs> Seriously. Larry and Gary. <laughs> yeah. Give them a chance to have a separate identity. Right. <laughs> Between March and November of 1994, Wabash Police Sergeant Amons had several conversations with Larry Hall. Apparently, the sergeant realized that Hall had mental health problems, and at his recommendation, Hall agreed to see a therapist at a mental health facility in Wabash. Detective Amons kept in touch with the treating therapist and provided him with information about the accusations concerning Hall's propensity to bother young girls. The therapist, in turn, shared his assessment of Hall's condition with Detective Amons, who, in turn, kept some other local law enforcement agencies informed of Hall's treatment. When I read this, I was actually very surprised. Like, why is the therapist telling a police officer anything? At Investigator Miller's request, Detective Amons asked Larry Hall to come to the Wabash Police Department on November 2, 1994, telling him that someone from Illinois wanted to speak with him. Miller made the three-hour drive from Georgetown to Wabash to interview Larry Hall in person. Miller was caught off guard, though, when he was not the only detective in the room to talk to Hall. Detectives from the Marion, Indiana Police Department were also there to talk to Larry Hall about a missing student. On March 29, 1993, so this was about six months before Jessica Roach was abducted near her home in Georgetown, Illinois, Trisha Reitler, a student at Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana, went missing and detectives believed she had been abducted and killed. Trisha was a freshman psychology major from Olmstead Falls, Ohio, and was close with her family. She was the oldest of four children. She had two sisters and a brother, and Trisha actually didn't initially want to go to IWU, but her parents encouraged her to go there because it was a small Christian college, which they felt reflected their faith, and she received a scholarship that helped lessen their financial burden. Since Trisha was on scholarship, she of course had to work hard to maintain it, and on March 29th, she had been in her dorm for several hours writing a term paper when she decided she needed to take a break, and she walked to the Marsh Supermarket that was just a few blocks away from her dorm. She was seen buying a diet root beer and a Family Circle magazine, but she never made it back to her dorm. You know, Kath, when I saw that it was Family Circle, I totally thought of you because I would have been the person to buy the People magazine and you would have bought the, the more sophisticated magazines. <laughs> what I thought was more sophisticated. Exactly. Red book. According to 27 Unsolved, a news program out of Marion, Indiana, Trisha's dad, Gary Reitler, said that the day Trisha disappeared was just three days after he dropped her back at school after she spent spring break in Ohio with the family. On the day Trisha disappeared, Mr. Reitler said he received a phone call from a Marion police officer who asked him if he knew where Trisha was. Mr. Reitler knew something bad had happened. Trisha's sister Sarah spoke to 27 Unsolved and said her first memory of Trisha going missing was her father coming into her room about midnight and waking her up looking for the phone number of one of Trisha's friends. Mr. Reitler told Sarah that they received a call from the Marion Police Department who said Trisha was missing. A bunch of friends and family came over, and the next morning, Mr. and Mrs. Reitler left to go to Indiana to assist with the search for their daughter. 
The Marion police and campus security worked together to search the campus and the woods surrounding it. Police believed Trisha probably took a shortcut back to her dorm, and as they searched the trail that Trisha might have taken, they found her bloodstained shoes and bloody jeans that had been neatly folded and placed on top of her shoes, and they found Trisha's meal card in the pocket of her jeans. That ramped up the search, and the police brought in additional personnel, dogs, helicopters, and planes to try and find Trisha. The search continued for five weeks, but she was never found. Trisha's sister Sarah said the turning point was when she got a call from her parents who told her about Trisha's clothes. Sarah remembered standing in the hallway with her sister Melissa, hugging each other and crying, and realizing they would probably never see their sister again. After Trisha disappeared, IWU officials advised all female students to stay in their dorm rooms and not go outside. But after a week of being cooped up, Kristen Zeller and Heather Edgett needed groceries and decided to walk together to the Marsh supermarket. According to a report by CNN, it was getting dark by the time Kristen and Heather left the supermarket and were walking along the street that bordered the campus. Heather asked Kristen if she noticed the van that had just passed them, and Kristen said no. The second time the van drove past the women, it was noticeable to both of them because the van drove so slowly as it passed. The third time the van came by, it was moving at a crawl, and the driver was staring at them. The van pulled up to the curb next to the sidewalk, and when the driver started saying something, the women both ran. The women called campus security and described a two-tone brown van driven by a man with mutton-chop sideburns. Security officers drove the streets around the campus and found the van and stopped the driver to question him. The driver told the officers he was looking for a friend's house and was lost. He gave the officers the address, and they pointed him in the right direction of the street he was looking for. However, when campus security ran the address after they got back to their office, they found that it did not exist. When they ran the license plate of the van, it was registered to Larry Hall of Wabash, Indiana. The security guards then turned this information over to the Marion Police Department. When Marion police learned that Larry Hall was caught stalking two girls not far from where Trisha Reitler was last seen, they brought him in for questioning. During the interview, Hall told detectives that he often had bad dreams and then described one of them in detail. In the dream, he killed Trisha Reitler by strangling her near a tree. Marion detectives called Wabash police detectives to see what they knew about Larry Hall. They were told that he was known to stalk teenagers and young women, but he never did anything other than follow them. He had not been prosecuted for any of those incidents. So, Cap, years after this initial interview of Larry Hall in Marion, the deputy police chief Tim Enyart told 27 Unsolved that Larry Hall was initially a suspect, but that they did not have enough to arrest him for any crime. The deputy chief said that in the interview, they found out that Hall was known to read detective magazines and he would go to other crime scenes and try to insert himself into investigations. He also could not give them any specific details about Trisha Reitler's disappearance. And they also found out that he had an IQ of 80. And Kath, 80 is on the low end of average for IQs. Yeah, exactly. And ultimately, the Marion detectives believe that they were listening to the fantasies of a disturbed man rather than the confession of a killer. 
So after this interview, no charges were filed and he was released. So now fast forward 18 months, we're back in November of 1994, and Marion police had not given up on finding Trisha Reitler's killer. This is why they were in Wabash to talk to Larry Hall the same day that Vermilion County investigator Gary Miller was interviewing him for the abduction and murder of Jessica Roach. Marion detectives questioned Hall about stalking the IWU students and in doing so hoped to get information that would lead them to Trisha Reitler. Unfortunately, detectives were unable to obtain any information that linked Hall to her disappearance. During this November 2, 1994 interview with Larry Hall, investigator Miller was able to talk to him one-on-one in an interrogation room. Miller said that when he first sat down with Hall, Hall was wringing his hands and would not look him in the eye, and so Miller decided he wanted to try and get a reaction, so he placed a picture of Jessica Roach on the table right in front of Hall. Hall's reaction was to raise his hands in front of his face as though to shield himself from the photo, and then he turned his head away. At that moment, based on Hall's reaction, investigator Miller believed he had found Jessica's killer. Hall did not admit to seeing Jessica, but he told investigator Miller that he had a dream about a 15-year-old girl walking her bike. In the dream, he stopped and talked to her, and then he just felt he had to grab her and stop her from getting away from him. He tied her up, but he could not remember with what, took her pants off, and raped her, leaving her in the woods laid up against a tree. He then put a belt around her neck until she stopped breathing. Hall also added that in his dream he was behind the tree because he did not want to see her face as she died. Then, without being directly prompted, Hall spoke about hurting several other women and said all of the girls looked alike, and he could not remember all of them. He said he picked up several girls in other areas and could not remember which ones he hurt. He said he did things, but he was not in control, and he had these nightmares where he dreamed of these murders. To Investigator Miller, it did not seem like Hall was sharing a dream, but rather was confessing to Jessica Roach's murder. Investigator Miller and Hall talked for several hours, and when Miller did not get the information he wanted, he became upset with Hall's responses. Miller moved closer to him and started suggesting the right answers as the questioning progressed. Hall started crying, and during a break, Hall asked Sergeant Amons what was expected of him. As the interview was wrapping up, Hall also mentioned to Investigator Miller that he happened to be in Georgetown the weekend of Jessica's murder attending a war reenactment. But after two and a half hours or so, Hall was released. Even though Hall made some statements during their interview that had the potential to implicate him in being responsible for Jessica's murder, Miller knew he needed to find hard evidence to put Hall behind bars. Since Jessica was abducted in Illinois, but her body was found in Indiana, crossing state lines made her abduction a federal case. So Miller turned to the FBI for help. Federal agents from Springfield, Illinois, obtained a warrant to search Hall's van, and according to Assistant U.S. Attorney Lawrence Beaumont, in the van, agents found a picture of a young girl that had the name Jessica written on it and roadmaps that seemed to link Hall to the crime scenes with locations of where Jessica was kidnapped and where her body was found circled. Agents also found handwritten notes describing Hall's actions around the time of Trisha Reitler's abduction that indicated he was stalking the area. One note specifically mentioned the intersection where the Marsh supermarket was located. The note said, Seen many nice girls at marshes. Seen joggers and bikers. Many alone. 
One week after Trish's disappearance, Hall appeared to write a note reminding himself to cut out stained carpet, burn paint tarps, buy new hacksaw blades, and clean all tools. When federal agents were first brought into the case, they were aware that Marion police and Wabash Police Departments interviewed Hall on several occasions for following or stalking girls and young women. As the FBI agents looked further into Larry Hall, they became aware that five months prior, a third police department had interviewed Hall, Gas City Police Department. Now, this was about 30 miles from Hall's home in Wabash. So they learned that in May of 94, which is one year after Trisha Reitler disappeared and eight months after Jessica Roach was killed, Gas City Police stopped Hall after a parent reported Hall's license plate number in connection with an incident in which a man was trying to lure children into his van. Police impounded Larry Hall's van for a faulty registration, which allowed them to do a warrantless inventory of the van. This turned up a handwritten note with three key words, Roach, Cornfield, and Perrysville. And as we previously mentioned, Perrysville is where Jessica's body was found in a cornfield. Officers also found what they called an abduction kit. There was a rope, a knife, a ski mask, cotton balls, and a can of starter fluid. Now, starter fluid contains ether, and officers suspected that that would have been used perhaps on a handkerchief to incapacitate women. Honestly, most of what they called the abduction kit could be explained in some way. The starter fluid with the ether in it, that's what freaked me out. See, I'm hung up on the ski mask. They were in northern Indiana. I'm willing to bet they probably get a little snow. Yeah. Maybe a ski mask in Southern California is not normal. Yeah. But we'll give it to him on that. But the ether, though, Kath, that's freaking scary. Yeah. So apparently starter fluid, people huff it. But what they do, I read, they'll spray an entire can of starter fluid into, like, say, a gallon-sized bag. They add water and shake it up. That creates a separation from the ether and the other chemical component, which I can't remember the name of. You then, like, you put a hole in the bottom of the bag so the water comes out. You then catch the remaining ether in a separate bag. And if you want to purify it some more, you repeat the process. But ultimately, you're left with ether. And they said one huff of this ether is like drinking 20 glasses of wine in five minutes. I'm really glad you gave the ingredients and the directions <laughs> to our listening audience. I thought it was fascinating because at first I was like, what does it matter if they're starter fluid? But yeah, starter fluid apparently contains 20 to 60 percent ether which obviously can make somebody unable to run. Well, and especially all of these women who he's accused of stalking and or making disappear or kill. Right. These were all very slight young women. Exactly. It was also reported that the van contained college stationery with Trisha Reitler's name on it, articles and flyers about her disappearance, and a Newsweek article on serial killers. Since federal investigators knew that Larry Hall traveled in his van with his twin brother Gary to revolutionary and Civil War reenactments, detectives decided to take a closer look at his family. Assistant U.S. Attorney Beaumont talked to Hall's father, who claimed to have a receipt that would prove Hall's van was at an auto shop in Wabash, Indiana, the weekend Jessica Roach was abducted and killed. 
Prosecutor Beaumont said he went with investigators to a meeting at the auto shop to speak with the owner and instead found a sign on the door that said, meet me at my attorney's office. That is hilarious. Like when I read this, I was like, okay, this guy doesn't want a mess. He's getting a lawyer and it's happening at the lawyer's office. He probably agreed to do the interview and then was like, what am I getting myself into? Right. So Prosecutor Beaumont and federal agents went to the attorney's office where the owner of the shop admitted that Hall's father went to his shop and begged him to create the phony invoice. Now, Kath, I thought it was interesting because I found out, too, despite Hall's father's best efforts to obstruct this investigation. Yes, create an alibi for his son, right? His dad was never charged. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Now, also according to court records, almost two weeks after Investigator Miller's first interview with Hall... On November 15, 1994, Wabash, Indiana police detectives told Hall that they needed to question him again. This time, there were FBI agents. FBI agent Randolph was at Wabash to administer a polygraph test, but Hall refused to take it. After Hall's refusal, Agent Randolph interrogated Hall alone for about two hours, and it was during this time that Hall began to talk about Jessica Roach. 20 or 30 minutes after Hall first started talking about Jessica, he began confessing to his involvement in Jessica's case. Kath, I did not see anything in the court records to indicate that he called it a dream, as he had twice in the past. Right. There were no notes, tape recordings, or video recordings of the interview with Hall, which actually, Kath, lasted 15 and a half hours. I know. And this is in 94. They could have had any of that stuff if they wanted it. I mean, like, what the heck? Instead, Agent Randolph wrote out a statement of Hall's confession in narrative format and asked Hall to sign it. 
The court record said that investigator Miller was present for at least part of this questioning and then continued to talk with Hall for an hour or so after the statement was signed. Agent Randolph's interview of Hall lasted from 10 in the morning of November 15th until about 3.20 a.m. the next morning. At the conclusion of the interview, Larry Hall was booked into the Grant County Jail at 3.25 a.m. on November 16, 1994. More than a month later, on December 21, 1994, this is about 14 months after Jessica Roach's abduction and death, Larry Hall was charged in a one-count indictment with the federal offense of kidnapping Jessica for purposes of sexual gratification and transporting her across state lines from Illinois to Indiana. Now, according to an Associated Press article by journalist Christopher Wells that was published in the Daily Chronicle, which is an Illinois newspaper, because the FBI did not know if Jessica was killed in Illinois or Indiana, they did not file murder charges. On May 22, 1995, 12 jurors and two alternates were selected for the federal kidnapping trial of 32-year-old Larry Hall that took place at the U.S. District Court in Peoria, Illinois. Assistant U.S. Attorney Lawrence Beaumont prosecuted the case. His case was built primarily around Larry Hall's confession to police that included details of Jessica Roach's kidnapping and murder that were never released to the public. According to a May 25, 1995 newspaper article, the jurors heard testimony from investigator Miller that Hall confessed to binding Jessica's hands in front of her and leading her into a wooded area and strangling her from behind a tree, meaning he got behind the tree when he strangled her so he didn't have to see her face. Hall said Jessica was crying and asking for her mom, which made him mad. In this same written confession, Hall acknowledged killing Trisha Reitler and two other unnamed girls. According to an Associated Press article by the same journalist Christopher Wells, he describes what police called information not released to the public. Apparently, Hall had described the curved handlebars of Jessica's bike as well as crossing a steel bridge to the site where her body was left. The federal prosecutor said Hall had pornographic pictures with Jessica's name on them with red around her mouth. His argument was that this red around her mouth probably meant blood from a blow that broke her jaw. And frankly, Kathy, this is just argument because Jessica's body was left outside for a long time and then her remains were run over by a combine. Defense attorneys admitted that Hall was intrigued by Jessica's death and drove on several occasions the 150 miles from his home to her neighborhood to cruise around. They also said he sometimes followed girls but never touched them. Then, according to defense attorneys, when he was questioned by the police, his mental illness prompted him to make a false confession. Defense counsel even suggested that his passion for war reenactments signaled that his life was based around pretending and stated the quote-unquote details of the confession could have been obtained from the newspapers. Hall's defense attorney, Craig DeArmond, said during closing argument that Hall's confession should be discounted because Hall dreamed about solving crimes and then moved on to fantasizing about being a suspect. After an eight-day trial, the jury deliberated for fewer than five hours before convicting Larry Hall of kidnapping Jessica Roach for sexual purposes. In August of 1995, U.S. District Judge Harold Baker sentenced Larry Hall to life in prison according to the mandatory federal sentencing guidelines. 
Judge Baker recommended that Hall be sent to a federal psychiatric clinic before being assigned to a prison. So, Kath, as you would imagine, Larry Hall appealed his conviction. Mm -hmm. About a year later, in 1996, the Court of Appeals issued their opinion on Larry Hall's appeal. They found that the district court made two mistakes. The first mistake was that the trial court excluded the testimony of two experts. One was a psychologist and one was a psychiatrist. The psychologist, Dr. Offshee, would have testified about the fact that experts in his field agree that false confessions exist, that individuals can be coerced into giving false confessions, and that certain indicators can be identified to show when they are likely to occur. The psychiatrist, Dr. Trogett, would have testified about Hall's susceptibility to various interrogation techniques, the propriety of suggesting answers to Hall, and Hall's capability of confessing to a crime that he did not commit. In the Court of Appeals opinion, it said the district court did not sufficiently analyze whether the testimony from the two professionals would assist the jury in their factual determination, an analysis that is required under federal law. The second mistake identified by the Court of Appeals held that the district court should not have admitted the portion of Hall's written confession that said he killed Trisha Reitler and two unnamed girls because it did not meet the evidentiary requirements for admissibility. The reason for this is that admitting other crimes into evidence can be highly prejudicial. So under Federal Rule of Evidence 404B, factors are outlined which must be met before evidence of other crimes can come in. One factor requires that there be sufficient evidence to support a finding by the jury that the defendant committed the similar act that prosecutors were trying to admit at trial. The Court of Appeal pointed out that the Trisha Reitler case had been discussed extensively in the press and Hall's statement contained facts that could have been gleaned entirely from news reports. It offered nothing that could have been known only to the guilty party. The government presented no other evidence linking Hall to the Reitler murder or the murder of the other two unnamed victims, either at the district court level or before the Court of Appeals. In an attempt to exclude the statements, Hall's attorney told the judge that he would present statements from the chief of police of Marion, Indiana, that Hall was not a suspect in Trisha Reitler's murder and specifically named a different suspect. You know, Kat, this is interesting because, as you know, it was the Marion Police Department who was responsible for investigating the disappearance of Trisha Reitler. After the interview in November, early November of 1994, they decided that Hall was not a viable candidate as her suspect. To date, Marion PD has not accused Hall of being responsible for her disappearance, but they do say we have not ruled him out as a suspect. They apparently had another individual in mind at some point, but no charges were ever brought against this person. So the Court of Appeals essentially said the district court should not have admitted that portion of Hall's statements with these three unrelated murders, and because the prejudice was so massive that Hall gets a new trial. They did, however, allow evidence of the stalking because the stalking was well-documented and clearly admissible. Which makes perfect sense, though, because for all of these different murders that we're talking about, it's either a confession or a dream that he's had, but I haven't heard of any physical evidence being collected. I saw that nowhere. Correct. But the stalking, obviously, it has witnesses, it has contact from many different areas. Right. Eyewitnesses taking down plates, dads making phone calls, people chasing down vans, for sure. Right. Yeah. And so simply because somebody confesses to a murder does not mean that is sufficient for a conviction. Prosecutors always have to have corroborating evidence. 
So if I say I killed somebody and I bring them to the body, obviously that's evidence. If I say I killed somebody and provide no substantiating evidence whatsoever, I will not get tried. You have to have circumstantial evidence pointing to guilt or direct evidence corroborating the confession. So based on this opinion, one year after being sentenced to life in prison, a new trial was ordered for Larry Hall. On August 18, 1997, his second trial began. He was again convicted of kidnapping Jessica Roach for purposes of sexual gratification. After the second conviction, according to an Associated Press article by journalist Christopher Wells, Jessica Roach's mother read a statement at sentencing. She said, when Larry Hall stole, violated, and then killed our daughter, it was like taking a sharp stick and poking God in the eye. Soon he will be on the receiving end of God's anger. May God show you mercy because we have none. Hall addressed the court and said, I pray to God that the truth will come out that I had nothing to do with this crime. On December 2, 1997, U.S. District Court Judge Joe Billy McDade sentenced him to life in prison without parole. One year later, in 1998, the U.S. Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed Hall's conviction and sentencing for the kidnapping of Jessica Roach. Although Larry Hall was locked up for the rest of his life, Assistant U.S. Attorney Beaumont did not want to let him get away with murdering Jessica, Trisha, or the two other unnamed girls who he confessed to killing before recanting and saying what he told police were just dreams he had. Bothered by the fact that the Reitlers never found their daughter or even learned what happened to her, in the days after successfully convicting Larry Hall for a second time, Prosecutor Beaumont organized a search of the nature preserve where Hall said in one of his confessions was where he buried Trisha's body. Army soldiers and cadaver dogs searched the woods and an FBI plane searched overhead. However, no remains were ever found. After failing again to find Trisha Reitler's remains, Prosecutor Beaumont came up with a Hail Mary plan. He decided to send someone in undercover at the prison where Larry Hall was incarcerated to gain Hall's trust and maybe get Hall to tell his new friend information he would not tell authorities. Kath, I think it's interesting that even though Marion PD said they didn't think Hall was their guy, this prosecutor did, and he, he was just going for it. It's almost like he was a dog with a bone and didn't believe that Hall had nothing to do with Trisha. Right. Well, I mean, obviously he didn't, but I mean, he's the attorney. He has inside scoop. Who knows what right. he knows that we didn't. And frankly, got to say, the court of appeal opinion in this case was not very well written and not super factual. So I don't know what else this guy knew. So needing to find a man to go in undercover, Prosecutor Beaumont decided to reach out to a man named James Keene, who went by the name Jimmy. According to a January 30th, 2011 article in the Buffalo News by journalist Dan Herbeck, Jimmy Keene grew up in Kankakee, Illinois, which is south of Chicago. So, Kath, this is now rivaling. Let's keep track. Right. This is now rivaling my favorite named places. It's got Chattahoochee. Apalachicola. Apalachicola. That's a good one. And now Kankakee. Right. I like that, too. So Jimmy's father, James Sr., who was known as Big Jim, was a decorated police officer and was reported to have lived on the edge hanging around mob associates and crooked politicians. That's what the article said. It is. And in some articles, we actually saw that he was listed as a former police chief for a small Illinois town. However, we could find absolutely nothing that verified that, which is why we're not including it here. Exactly. So Big Jim's father. Is that Biggest Jim? Yes. <laughs> 
was a driver for Al Capone, one of the most obviously famous mobsters in history. So here we have Jimmy. Jimmy was a star football player and wrestler at Kankakee Eastridge High School, and he had dreams of playing in the NFL. Despite being a standout athlete, no major colleges were looking at him for football, so he decided to deal cocaine while he was in high school to make some money. As one would do. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So Jimmy made a lot of money. In fact, it was reported that he made millions of dollars and in high school was one of the largest independent drug dealers in Illinois. So naturally, at some point, he got on law enforcement's radar. And in 1996, 17-year-old Jimmy Keene was arrested on federal drug conspiracy charges. I was actually shocked to see that he was 17 when this happened. That means he had started dealing drugs at 16. And no wonder he was on their radar. You know everybody was talking about the fact that this high school had a kid who was a drug kingpin for all intents and purposes. Yep. That's going to get back to the powers that be. I'm always amazed when I hear stories like this of somebody who becomes so extremely successful at something illegal. I think to myself, what could they have done? You know, if they had used it for good instead of evil. Exactly. Exactly. Also, I think it's important to point out that we obtained this information from articles we read and interviews that Kathy with a K listened to. With Jimmy himself. Exactly. We know that Jimmy Keene has a book. We have not read the book. No. So most of this actually is from his own mouth. but, But he has a book if you want to read it. I don't think either of us remember the name of the book. (laughs) Exactly. But you can Google Google it. it. So anyway, he came on law enforcement's radar. Assistant U.S. Attorney Lawrence Beaumont prosecuted the case and Jimmy was convicted and sentenced to serve a minimum of 10 years in prison before he would be eligible for parole. Obviously, this is the same prosecutor who did Jessica's case. So Jimmy comes to his mind. When Prosecutor Beaumont decided to put this plan into place by placing an informant in jail with Larry Hall, Jimmy Keene came to mind because he was so charismatic, and Beaumont saw him as someone who could become friends with anyone. He said people were just drawn to him and wanted to be around him. It's kind of like he was the guy all the guys wanted to be and all the girls wanted to date. Totally. So when Prosecutor Beaumont approached Keene with the deal, which was get Larry to confess to some of the murders and find out where Trisha Reitler was buried, then Keene would be released from prison. So, Kath, here's what's interesting. In one of the interviews that I saw with Jimmy Keene, he said that he initially turned Beaumont down. Primarily, he was scared because you're now taking this kid who is in minimum security prison. You're putting him in a federal maximum security prison. And Larry was incarcerated at the United States Medical Center for Federal Prisoners. They nowhere technically used the word. It was for the criminally insane. But essentially, this was where the prisoners with severe mental health problems wound up. Yes. So. He was afraid he's going to get stuck in prison. It's now maximum security. You have people with mental health issues and and other issues. And he's like, what if I get shanked? Yeah. Or shivved? Yeah. Or schlocked? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, prison break. Exactly. He's concerned about the Hannibal Lecters of the world. Exactly. And so he initially said no. But what happened was his dad, as you'll recall, his name is Big Jim. He was somebody who Keen described as his hero. Okay. And he had a stroke. So Keen was concerned that if he's in prison for 10 years for his drug conviction, is his dad going to die while he's gone? Oh. And so he wanted to make sure that he could be with his dad. I did not read that anywhere. Yeah. Interesting. So Keen took the deal. And in 1997, he was sent to the maximum security United States Medical Center for Federal Prisoners. 
Keene's cover story was that he was a convicted weapons runner and he was pushed over the edge after learning that he would have to serve 40 years in prison. And in one of the interviews, Keene said that he could relate to this cover story because when he learned that he was going to prison for a minimum of 10 years for his drug conviction, he was absolutely gobsmacked. My word, not his. (laughs) (laughs) In this case, the only people in the prison who would know that he was an FBI undercover plant were the warden and the chief doctor. Nobody else in the prison knew that he was anything other than this convicted gun runner who was in the middle of a 40-year stint. That's understandable and terrifying. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, so the guards aren't treating you special. Not at all. Now, Keene faced several really big challenges, other than the obvious ones we've already stated. And although his assignment was to befriend Hall and get him to talk about the murders, the Springfield prison housed notoriously violent criminals who, of course, then would be suspicious of any new person coming in, whether they were a prisoner or not. So in addition to having to focus on becoming Hall's friend, Keene said in interviews that he had to constantly have his head on a swivel to make sure that there wasn't anybody else who was trying to kill him or figured out he was a snitch or anything like that. Now, although Beaumont told Keene to wait a little bit before seeking out Larry Hall, he coincidentally bumped into Hall on his first day at the prison and wound up just spontaneously asking Hall for directions to the library. Keene said that after this, he was able to start conversations with Larry Hall when he ran into him in the prison mess hall or in the library, but progress was super slow. After Keene has been in the prison for a few months, just kind of randomly running into Hall and trying to initiate conversations, Mm -hmm. Keene saw Hall reading a newspaper in the library, and Keene went up to him and said, hey, my mom told me that she'd been reading in the Indiana newspapers that you're suspected of being a serial killer. And Hall said, it's not what they said. And Keene's response was, hey, relax, it doesn't matter what you did. Look at all these crazy people in here. Whatever you did, you did for your own reasons. And Keene said that was successful because little by little, Hall began to reveal himself to Keene. The two started spending time together, and one night they were watching TV when another prisoner came in and changed the channel. Keene saw this as an opportunity to impress Hall, so he went after the guy and, in the interview I saw, said he beat him to a pulp. In other things that I read, said he punched the guy. Mm-hmm. So take that as you will. The guards, of course, heard the ruckus, came running, and because he initiated the fight, they put him in solitary confinement overnight. Now, remember, they did not know he was a plant. But Keene said he thought it was the right thing to do to show Hall that he was loyal and protective of him. Over time, Keene won Hall's trust. They started spending time in Hall's cell, and Keene said that was when Hall told him about killing Jessica Roach. Hall described the attack in gruesome detail and said he took Jessica to a tree and that is where he strangled her to death. It was just a few weeks later that Hall told Keene he also killed Trisha Reitler. Hall said he was choking her in a rage of panic because she was fighting so strongly against him. He said he blacked out and when he woke up, Trisha was lying beside him dead. Hall said he got lime and buried her in the woods but Hall had already told police similar stories, and U.S. Attorney Beaumont told Keene he had to get the exact location of where Hall buried Trisha Reitler. A few days later, Keene supposedly got his answer when he came across Larry carving tiny falcons in the prison wood shop. You know what surprises me is that in a prison for people who are known to be violent and maybe not stable mentally. They meet the definition for legal insanity. And they provide them with knives. I know. I just thought that was odd. Seems to me a little odd, too. 
So anyway, while in the wood shop, Hall had a map laid out in front of him of Illinois, Wisconsin, and Indiana that had red marks and locations in each state. And when Keene walked in, Hall's first reaction was to dive on top of the map and cover it up and try to fold it up really fast. Keene asked about the falcons Hall was carving, and Hall told him that the falcons were totems to watch over the dead. Keene was certain the locations of where Hall buried his victims were on that map. He called his FBI handler and left an urgent message with the information that Keene was sure was his ticket out of prison. So, Kath, when he called the FBI, he left a voicemail message. He didn't even speak to a live human being, but he believes now that he's going to be out within 24 hours. So he couldn't resist going to Hall and telling him that he was working undercover for the FBI. I couldn't believe it when I saw that. I know. So Keene tells Hall he's one of the most despicable human beings that ever walked the face of the earth. He was a sicko, all this kind of crap. So Keene is screaming. He's yelling expletives, which, of course, get the attention of the guards. So the guards come, they break up this confrontation, and Keene gets placed in solitary. Again. Exactly. And it takes the FBI days to get the voicemail message. And by the time they get the message and they go to retrieve the map, it's gone. So based on what Keene said, it was almost immediately after leaving the message that he blew up on Hall and told him all of this stuff. If you were Hall... Don't you go straight back to your... I'd eat the map. Yes. You know, like whatever. I probably would have flushed it. Right. (laughs) Depends on how hungry you are. But you would have destroyed the thing. Immediately. Exactly. So even though the operation failed, Keene passed a polygraph about the existence of the map and what he thought was marked on it, meaning the remains of victims. And the authorities were convinced he was telling them the truth. So he was released and given a full pardon. That surprised me. Yeah. So U.S. Attorney Beaumont said Keene was still rewarded for the effort because he spent seven or eight months with Larry Hall, and that deserves some credit. And by the way, Kath, I don't think we said this, but how far into his 10-year sentence was he? He was a year. Okay. Basically a 10-year minimum sentence. He served under two. And then one other quick thing, Kathy, about him leaving early. Jimmy Keene's father survived for about five years after he got out of prison. And in these interviews that we've been talking about, Keene said that he wouldn't have traded it for anything in his life. Larry Hall was considered by many to be responsible for a lot more abductions and murders than he even confessed to, talked about having dreams of, you know, then later recanted. Mm -hmm. And so Radford University, which is in Southern Virginia, their Department of Psychology actually did a study of Larry Hall. Mm -hmm. They did not talk to Larry Hall for the study. It's a very extensive study, but basically what it did, from what I could tell, and I did not see anything written that described exactly what their parameters were or how they collected their information. There was only one citation for information, and it was specific to something else. But basically, the authors of this report created a timeline from when Larry was 18 years old till his incarceration of pretty much every stalking, every disappearance, every murder of a young woman in the greater Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin area. If what the report implies is true, Larry Hall could be responsible for the murder of up to 50 women, which would actually make him the most prolific serial killer in the United States. It is crazy because I read in a lot of different sources how many people suspected that he had killed multiple women. 
So depending on what you read, it's 20 to 25, it's 40 to 60. Right. It seems to me there is a ton of speculation out there. But I agree with you. Like if what people are implying or suspecting is accurate, it, it would make him. And I believe that the locations of all of these disappearances and bodies and what have you came from the Revolutionary War and Civil War reenactments that he attended with his brother. Right. Again, he's never been arrested for any of that. He's never been tried. He's never been convicted. And to this day, he has only been convicted of kidnapping. Now, I'm not saying that he wasn't involved. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is, I don't know. Right. Now, what the Radford study found was that Larry was antisocial in school. As we said earlier, he had an IQ of 80, and he was teased for being slower than other children and for having a speech impediment. Now, remember, he had an identical twin. Hall was apparently the younger of the two. In the Radford University paper, it said by seconds. Mm -hmm. Larry's twin, Gary, did not have any of these same challenges. I read somewhere that Larry was deprived of oxygen at birth. I hadn't seen that. Yeah. Okay. Hall was also teased for living at the cemetery. Which I would have loved, by the way. You would have. I love cemeteries. If only your dad could have been a grave digger and not a lawyer. (laughs) Exactly. After high school, Hall got a job as a janitor in Wabash and continued to live with his parents. Now, in this document, it also reveals that as a teenager, Hall was also suspected of committing acts of arson, vandalism, and various petty crimes in his hometown of Wabash. And while we talked about the up to 50 women it is alleged that he may have killed, there was an Associated Press article in 2011 in which Hall claimed that between 1980 and 1994, he abducted 39 women. Jimmy Keene's inability to control his impulse to tell Hall that he was an FBI informant was unfortunate. Who knows what his silence could have led to? Exactly. And imagine the potential for all of these families to have found out where their children were. Right. Or even one, one yeah. victim to have been located, one person to have been unburied or uncovered. One you family know. to have been given this closure. Exactly. Although the Reitlers no longer believe Trisha is alive, they have not given up hope of finding their daughter's remains. Mrs. Reitler said they need that closure as a family. In 2018, 25 years after Trisha's disappearance, Indiana Wesleyan University installed a permanent memorial for her on campus. Mrs. Reitler said it includes a park bench engraved with one of Trisha's favorite Bible quotes, and it reads, May grace and peace be yours sent to you from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Seeing the memorial brought Mr. and Mrs. Reitler a feeling of peace, but they say they won't truly begin to heal until they can properly bury their daughter back at home. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. 
new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.